Food waste is already a global problem, and it could even get worse as the world's population grows. How can we address this rising issue? Flash Food founder and CEO Josh Dominguez joins us today to talk about the need for collaboration in fighting the issue and how his company is addressing food waste on this episode of the Food Institute podcast, coming at you right now. All right, everybody, I want to thank you all for joining us again on this week's episode of the Food Institute podcast. Before we jump in, I did want to bring up the FI newscast. Once again, it is our weekly newscast. It airs every Friday at 12 o'clock Eastern. You can definitely find it on our YouTube channel, LinkedIn, or you could also check out foodinstitute.com to get a link directly there as well. So definitely want to throw one more shout out there to the FI newscast. Uh, With that out of the way, we welcome Josh Dominguez from Flash Food today. Uh, Josh, I was hoping you could introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background on Flash Food before we get today's conversation started. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It's it's always exciting to come on and and share our story. So my initial background is I was a high-level hockey player, uh, Canadian, grew up in Toronto. So obviously that's the thing. I'm like the walking stereotype. And after my hockey career, I had a scholarship and I played hockey out East. And then after that, I ended up working on Bay Street, which is like the Wall Street of Canada as an investment advisor. And I would just cold call business owners and convince them to give my boss a meeting so that we could manage their life savings. It was very much like boiler room style, 200 calls a day, um, like not dissimilar than what you'd see in old movies. And then from there, I did that for about a year and a half. And then from there, I joined a management consulting firm and I did that for another couple of years. And then my last job before starting Flash Food, my old agent, who was a pretty prominent NHL hockey agent, actually brought me in to help manage money for some of their clients. So they had five clients that were under 30 years old that were all multimillionaires and they created a family office for these players. So that was my last job prior to starting Flash Food. And that's kind of like... Yeah, that was my my professional journey uh, before starting the company. And we will jump back in and talk a little bit more about flash food. But I think at this point, it's worthwhile to talk about food waste in general, which I know is one of the things that flash food is trying to go after. Um, you know, previous Food Institute reporting, we've really shown our audience, you know, how massive an issue it is. But I was wondering if you could share any statistics about food waste in the U.S., Canada and globally to kind of table set us here today as we kind of go through this issue. Yeah, of course. So, um In terms of the number that got me the most, and when I think about it, I think environmentally, the thing that really irked me the most is when food gets thrown out, most times it ends up in a landfill, gets covered by other garbage, and when it rots, it doesn't have any oxygen. And that whole process produces methane gas. So the statistic is if international food waste were a country, it'd be the third leading cause of greenhouse gas emission behind the US and China, which just absolutely floored me. Like... We have finite resources and I mean, you hear about it growing up, like don't waste food because there's people that are less fortunate in other parts of the world that would, would really want any of the food that we have and just don't waste it. But you don't, you don't really think about it from the perspective of like what went into growing our food, what went into transporting our food to get it to different places, whether it be restaurants, whether it be stores, whether it be CPG companies, um, And there's just, when you throw out an item of food and it makes its way to a landfill, there's so much waste along the entire life cycle. And we could talk about the the tens of millions 
of folks in America that live basically paycheck to paycheck, if not hundreds of millions. And that's, that's consistent basically like in proportion by country um, and food affordability in terms of the pricing and what inflation rates have done to food. Like I guess quality food and fresh food has never been more financially, I won't say out of reach, but difficult to obtain consistently because of the price of food. So the, the environmental impact is what really spurred me and what really got me thinking because I'm like, look, there's all this food that's getting thrown out and there's all these folks that are trying to get by and can't afford fresh, healthy food. And that for me was the biggest thing. And then from there, I just had to learn about, and, and what it led to was talking to a ton of people, both in farms, in greenhouses, at grocery stores, at restaurants, and trying to do my best to understand from people who see the problem every day, why it is what it is. Because you can have preconceived notions, but going into it, talking to the folks that are on the front line, understanding what's impacting them, what's affecting them, and then trying to ideate how to solve any of those different areas is the approach that I took. So going into like some of the other macro numbers we can go into, but for me, the biggest thing was the environmental impact. And then just realizing there's so many people that can't afford food right now. And that was eight years ago. And it's never rung more true than today. Yeah, and it is kind of a staggering thing to hear that it would be the number three, um, you know, global c- contributor to greenhouse gases if you kind of stacked it up as a country. So when you first told me that, that kind of floored me. And I do agree, you know, we've seen over the last, you know, six, 12 months, inflation's really impacting consumers. I think they're a little bit more resilient with their food purchases than people originally expected, but that doesn't discount the fact that it is getting more and more difficult for people to go after those fresh, nutritious products, like you mm-hmm. just said, Josh. And I'm just wondering, you know, from a macro level, when you take a look at which products are being wasted the most often, which ones are being diverted to landfill, like what do you see from your seat? What are the most common types of products that are uh, ending up as food waste? The outside of the store. So things that are fresh, um, they're the things that do not have as long of shelf life, obviously, and typically require a lot more water to produce, which is just a whole other thing. But in terms of like, getting those to others to other areas that they can be repurposed or reused. It's a lot more difficult because for fresh produce, for example, anytime you touch a banana or an apple, it degrades in quality. So if you put it in a truck, pull it off a truck, put it in a store, move it around a store, merchandise it differently, like every time it's being touched and moved, the quality of that product is degrading faster and faster. And these items, I mean, bananas, apples, like whatever you're going to talk about, they only have a certain shelf life and there's there's initiatives and companies and innovation that's driving longer shelf life for these products by spraying them with different organic materials to make them last longer but it's predominantly the outside of the store fresher product that has less of a likelihood to be repurposed and more of a likelihood to end up either being composted um or in a landfill. And I know this one's probably a little bit harder to fully quantify, but you know, the global population is rising, right? And if things stay the same, that means we're going to be producing more food, but also wasting more food in the aggregate as well. I'm just wondering, do you have any projections, any kind of research you've seen that would maybe showcase how big of a problem this could get as the population continues to grow? Um, I don't have on hand actual numbers of 
what it could look like in the future. But I will say that I think we're going to continue to get more efficient in the the food supply chain. I actually think over the last nearly decade from what where I've been and what I've seen, companies are no longer like when I started and, and we deal with big grocery chains. But what that means is we're dealing with some of the biggest companies in the world in North America and in the world that are pretty well like the front facing retailers that get food on our plates. So what that means is we see all across the value chain by way of the biggest companies in the world who move the most volume. And I share all that because eight years ago when this was an idea, oftentimes some of these big companies didn't even track their food waste by category. Like it was just a cost of doing business and it just was what it was. And I think we kind of got away from ourselves in terms of this industry, not by anybody's fault, but just by way of how us as consumers purchase food. Like we're always reaching at the back for whatever has a longer shelf life. The near data stuff moves to the front. We don't take it because we want something with a longer shelf life. And if we go buy a watermelon on the shelf and there's only one as consumers, we assume it's the worst one. So retailers overstock the shelves. And that leads to so much along the entire value chain uh, that leads to waste. But what I'm seeing now and the vantage point that I have now and the conversations that I'm having now are no longer the issue is no longer being dismissed because these companies that are on the front line of getting food on people's plates realize the financial impact to their business by not becoming more efficient and not having vendors or partners more efficient along the entire process. It's no longer okay to have a a shipment show up at a store. Let's say it's like several cases of strawberries with one or two days of shelf life that the retailer knows they're not going to be able to sell through like there's way more openness to innovation. There's way more openness to conversations. There's way more collaboration amongst stakeholders. And even if there's one or two retailers that we don't have on right now for flash food, they're doing other things around food waste. And it's no longer like the conversation's no longer like, hey, come back to us in two or three years. The conversation's now like, hey, we just initiated, we just initiated a new initiative that is reducing our food waste by X. We want to see how this plays out before we bring a solution like you in or consider a solution like you. So I would actually say that like in the future, and that that rings true across growers, that rings true across transportation. Um, I was in a landfill a few weeks ago and and the, the carbon capture is incredible. Like I, I think that innovation is actually taking over in the space. And I think the willingness for people to solve this problem is greater than it's ever been, predominantly because the financial impact is so meaningful. So I think we're going to continue to be more more efficient, and I actually have an optimistic view of the future. Well, it's always good to hear that optimistic view because I think, you know, especially with food waste, you know, there's really a opportunity for people to get pessimistic, you know. Mm -hmm. It does seem like it's such a huge problem, right? And Mm -hmm. I think at this point it'd be a good to kind of jump in and talk about what flash food does. Typically when I'm interviewing a CEO company founder, you know, it's like we talk about this first, but I did think it was worthwhile to kind of talk about the issue at hand because it is so large and, you know, kind of multifaceted, but let's talk Mm -hmm. about what flash food does to kind of address this issue. So could you kind of lay it out for us and let our audience know exactly what the program is like? Yeah, of course. And I appreciate the framing of how we're doing this too. And I'll preface before we go into flash food on, this is a massive, massive issue and there's problems all across the supply chain on it. And it's going to take a village 
or several villages to solve this. And it's not going to stop. It's not like, hey, we checked all these boxes. It's done. It's, it's going to be continuously evolving. So Flash Food, we help grocers reduce their food waste by allowing them to make food available on our, on our Flash Food app at nearly 50% off discount to shoppers. Our users can see the deal through their phone, pay through their phone, and go pick that food up in the store usually that same day in the Flash Food Zone at the store. So we took the discount food rack, we made it look cool, and we put it on your cell phone. So that's the business. And to date, we've diverted nearly 100 million pounds of food that would have likely ended up in landfills, and we've saved shoppers, I think it's over $200 million in their grocery bills over our lifetime. Yeah, and I got to imagine that's more and more important for a lot of shoppers, as we kind of alluded to earlier, with the inflationary pressures we're seeing. I think a lot of consumers are really looking for these types of deals, right? Especially something that's kind of easily curatable for them as well, mm -hmm. right? So being able to just take a look on your phone. Are you seeing any kind of like increase because of that in the last six months? Anything that you can show that maybe the uh, consumer base is kind of looking for this a little bit more? We've certainly seen an increase in adoption from from the shopper side, and we've seen an openness, a continued openness from our grocery partners to expand in different categories that make their way onto the app. So it's one thing to be in a store and to have a flash food fridge and for the store to be making food available. And then progressively, what we've seen is those stores have shoppers that come in that are likely or oftentimes new shoppers to the store. And what happens is the store associates over time want to add different categories and add more food skews to the to the program because they're seeing such an uptick in purchase behavior from a from a retention and a shopper perspective the trend line that we usually see is the shoppers that stay on the app which is a high number of them when they have an active store in their area they're spending more money over time on flash food meaning they're saving more money because the discounts are roughly 50 percent off so when you have a store around you that's posting food it's just an incredibly sticky value proposition and we see consumers stay on basically forever. Um, and we also see like, I, I would say the unique part of what our business, like what happens that's unique from our business is we see a lot of families sharing the deals with each other, telling each other about it, calling their family member to pick up their food purchase on their way home from work. And it happens to be at a store that they didn't shop at before. Like we've heard multiple stories like that where families get behind this and it ends up becoming experiential with like cooking new items that you didn't usually cook because you have product that you didn't have before. You're trying new things and it's bringing families together in a way that honestly, I didn't anticipate when we started. And so the trends that we've seen further to your question are certainly the cost of acquisition for a download and a shopper have gone down over time pretty dramatically with the price of food going up. The openness from retailers has expedited in a way that we hadn't seen in the past because then throwing out food is more financially impactful than it's been in the past. And then for a shopper who gets onto the app, I would say like the stickiness or the repeatability is just incredibly high, which we've seen in the past um, through the life of our company, but we're just seeing compounded in more communities across America as we continue to scale. You know, I think the adage, you know, taste is king, still pretty important for the food industry, but experience is really getting up there as well. So it's kind of interesting to see the experiential part of all of this too. 
I am going to pivot a little bit here, though, because I do want to talk about the grocery stores you work with. You know, how many do you currently work with? How many stores are you active in? And maybe could you give us a little bit of a geographical kind of idea of where you're operating? Yep, absolutely. So Flash Foods in nearly 2000 stores across North America now. We're launched across Canada with Loblaws, the biggest grocery chain in the country. And then in America, we have scaled across predominantly the Midwest and the Northeast with great partners like Meyer across Michigan, the giant company in Pennsylvania, Tops in upstate New York. We're in a few Hy-Vee locations, a few family fairs. Uh, we're in VG's, we're in Stop and Shop in the Northeast, Giant Eagle also in Pennsylvania, and continuing to add more and more more and more locations amongst our partners and more and more partners relatively quickly. So in the next, call it six-ish months, we'll have some more meaningful announcements to make, but consistently adding more partners. And so I would say the coverage geographically is predominantly Midwest and Northeast with hopefully more to come in the near future. And one thing that always kind of intrigued me is companies that operate in Canada and the U.S. I'm just wondering from your vantage point, do you see any major differences in operating when it comes to food waste between the two countries? It could be, you know, maybe one's creating more waste, one's more open to, you know, programs and, you know, companies Mm -hmm. like yours that can help with the solution. Like, what do you see when you take a look at the two countries right now? The biggest difference that I see between operating a business in Canada and in America and the way that we are is in Canada, you have essentially three to five companies that control the flow of food across the entire country. There's less people in Canada than there are in California. And most of those people, something like 90% live within, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 50 miles to the U S border. Like it's very, it's a very small market with a big landmass. And so you have, a few companies that control the flow of food in the country and there's less innovation because of it. There's less openness to try new things because of it. It's actually probably one of the most difficult places to build a business like we have and to start. We just so happen to be here, which is why we started here. But in America, way different grocery landscape. You've got regional players that are bigger than some of the, like the second and third grocery chains in, in all of Canada. And these are companies that are still private. Um, so it's just fascinating because the innovation and, and in addition, the competitive nature in America, because of that, is so much more fierce between grocery chains. It's harder to get a shopper into your store and to keep them in your store and to keep them coming back and to attract new ones. So the openness from grocers is like to try new things is a lot higher in America. Um, from a shopper perspective, I would say educating people in new markets is a little bit different based on the market. Like educating somebody in Lansing, Michigan on what flash food is, is a lot different than educating somebody in um, upstate Massachusetts. Just it, There's just different shoppers in different markets. And so how to convey the message of what we're doing is different across the country. So you can't look at America and everybody would know this, but you can't look at it as like a blanketed, hey, here's our marketing approach. It has to be different for every community a little bit based on what folks in that community, like what they're like and how they live. You're not going to put an ad in uh, New Jersey about the Buffalo Bills and a partnership about, you know, like here's what your Sunday meal should be after the Bills game. Like you would not have a lot of downloads. You would not have a lot of happy people commenting on that ad. Um, And then in terms of the, in terms of, 
I would say like grocer challenges as an executive level is because you have so much competition, because you have way more people, it can be more difficult to get the attention of a grocery executive in America, mainly because they have so many different things to look at when it comes to innovation. There's so much coming at them. There's so many ideas. And it's fascinating to me because I've been through a few cycles now on the capital markets, on the venture markets. So you see different companies that pitch to grocery chains on whatever their thing is. And you see either the the acceptance rate or the pushback against it. And one thing that remains consistent across both countries and that I think is consistent across the international grocery market is it is, in, it, it is incredibly difficult to run a grocery store. Like if you think about it, it's a modern day miracle. I often cite in the depths of COVID at the beginning, when everything was shut down, one of the few things that stayed open was our grocery stores. And the supply chain was so strong that we continued to get fresh produce in upstate New York in the middle of the winter. That's a modern day miracle. And so these grocery stores have reminded me, and I think a lot of folks, these grocery stores remain the hub of our communities and will continue to. And I think there's something special in that. So the biggest differences between running a business in both countries is what I described. The market is just a lot different in Canada, but from a shopper perspective, the similarities are folks are looking to save money and people are willing to go out of their way to pick up food. That's great quality food that has shorter shelf life. Like that's continued to be shown and proven. And it just kind of goes back to the conversation that we're having at the beginning around inflation and what it's done to the price of food. Yeah. And there's a lot that we could respond to there, but I really mm -hmm. appreciate, you know, just the fact that grocery stores continue to be, you know, that kind of pillar of the community. And I think mm -hmm. omni-channel is usually the way to go. I know you guys have an online app, but there still happen, you know, I think a lot of consumers really want to be the ones that are picking out their fresh items. They don't want an yeah. independent shopper, you know, so like there is a definitely a very personal aspect when it comes down to the entire food collection, you know, process in general. So I think that's a really salient point. So I think one of the things about food waste is oftentimes the, uh, you know, the conversation can get pessimistic and negative, as I said earlier. So I'm going to try to tap into some of your optimism here again, Josh, but I'd like to just talk about the collaborative aspect. And you kind of mentioned this before, but, you know, food waste is a massive issue. It's not something that one specific company can address. And you see it across all channels. It's at the producer level. It's at the grocery level, food service. Consumers have a role in this. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the collaborative aspect of fighting food waste in general and kind of talk about your perspectives there. Yeah, I think... Um... Food waste from a collaboration perspective is unique in that you have a whole bunch of stakeholders, whether it be private sector, public sector, um, folks that are just looking to make a difference, nonprofit, charities, like there's so many people that are trying to help those either from reducing food waste or getting food to people that otherwise wouldn't have access to that food. And that's not unique to flash food. That's not unique to the last seven or eight years since I've been in this journey, that's been ongoing forever. Like that, that situation that I just described. And so while, while there's different ways of solving the problem, what I will say is for the most part in this space, if folks are doing things for the right reasons, being that you either like, however you want to reduce food waste, if you're genuinely doing it for the right reasons, you're going to get help and support and feedback from others in the space, even if their initiative is not 
going to benefit you or if it's just impartial to what you're doing because ultimately people who find themselves doing this kind of work for their life want to solve real problems that we just described. And so they're going to be open with their time. They're going to be like generous with how they think about the problem. They're going to be open with solutions. They're going to be open with introductions. And that's something that I've seen consistently through the, through my journey. And that comes from, again, like not-for-profit charity, um, private and public sectors. And that's been unique to see because ultimately nobody wants to throw out food, whether it's the grocery executive looking at their P&L, profit and loss statement, seeing how much the cost is, or whether it's the store employee, in our case, who's oftentimes one of the lower paid employees that has to throw food in the trash, or whether it's the farmer who doesn't even pick up food on the, on the field because it's not going to be worth it because nobody's going to be buying that food. Like nobody in the entire value chain likes to throw out food. And because of that, you see collaboration, you see introductions, you see access in a way that I don't think other industries would have. And an example that I've used in the past is it's almost similar to the craft beer industry where craft, craft beer companies oftentimes, and it's in a lot of the writing, they're not really competing against each other because if you have a craft brewery, it's usually a cool place. There's something unique about it. And so you have shoppers, you have consumers that are going to different craft breweries to get the experience. And what that means is if each of these places has good beer and a good experience, it's going to lift all of the boats in that industry against the big brewers that are just doing like commercialized beer, basically. And so you've seen over the last decade, uh, the Craft Brewers Association, like it's just, a, it, it's kind of a, it's a unique scenario where collaboration actually benefits everybody, even if you're traditionally a competitor. And I don't feel it the same way in the grocery space, in the, in the foodway space, but it's not too far off. And that's just what I've experienced and seen from different people. And that's been something really exciting and probably what leads to me having an optimistic view on the issue that, that informs some of my earlier thoughts about the future. Yeah, and that's interesting. I would even take it like a step further. You see with the craft beer industry, oftentimes they do collaborative brews, right? You have yep. a team that goes to another location and they yep. create a one-off experience. So it kind of ties into that earlier talk about, can you know, experience and what consumers are looking for. And I think you kind of answered this already, but, you know, you're finding that the industry is generally collaborative on this issue. You know, to your point, grocery stores are incredibly competitive in the U.S., but you're finding that there seems to be like a common theme here where people are willing to kind of unite on this, this program, you know, I guess, you know, there's operational benefits for them all kind of joining into this, but you're finding, you know, maybe this is a common kind of theme among these grocers. They're all kind of looking for similar solutions. I would say yes. Like there is certainly a level of competition and you're always going to have, well, it's very fierce in the grocery sector, but this is a lagging indicator of the food waste is a lagging I mean, some could argue it's a leading indicator of the quality of a retailer, but it, it ha like you can have best in class retailers still having a one to 3% shrink line being oftentimes a lot of what is called shrink in the grocery sector ends up being food waste or food loss. And those are best in class. And what I mean by one to 3% is that's based on their top line sales. So best in class, big companies still have a high waistline because it's just so difficult when you have hundreds or thousands of locations and you're moving food all over the place and you have different district managers, different store managers in different places that are being moved around, new stores, new teams, 
it's just really difficult to to get this right when you tie in consumer preferences. So I share all of that to say, this is one issue that I think collectively I've seen from my experience where, I mean, we've had some of our retail partners talk to, I wouldn't, I don't know if they're highly competitive grocery chains, but certainly cross state, not rivals, but other chains and tell them about what their experience has been like, not only with flash food, but with other food waste reduction um, initiatives. And you have Refed, an organization based in California that's publishing some of the content, not solution specific, naming companies, but naming different solutions and what the return is and what the benefit has been to retailers and other food companies. So this is an annual report now that goes out. That's incredible. Um, so yeah, there, there's certainly collaboration. Then you get it from the, the public sector. I mean, we've talked to Congressman Jim McGovern in um, Massachusetts has been a large advocate for food affordability and SNAP and EBT programs and, and what that does to create affordability for folks across the country. Like there's a lot of different stakeholders at play tying several really difficult things together to, to provide results. It's not perfect. It's not going to be, but it's making a big impact for a lot of people. And I think I'll close this section on like in terms of optimism, I was getting interviewed a couple months ago now, and it was, it was not an actual interview. It was off, off the record. And the reporter said like, well, how big of an issue, like how big of a solution is this? And I'm like, well, define big. To some of the families that are shopping on flash food, we're, we're a complete lifeline. Like they can't afford to feed their families this quality food if it wasn't for us. For a grocery store employee that has to throw out the food every day, and now they're seeing what it does to families, it's now become the best part of their day, one of the best parts of their day, because they know that they're not going to have to throw all this food in the garbage. So it really, like to make a big impact and to solve these big problems, tying it back to what you're talking about, it's going to take like small steps that lead to big results over time and collaboration amongst stakeholders to get there, whether it be private, public, nonprofit, charity, whatever it is. And I feel certainly that there's a lot of pull in a similar direction, even from typically initiatives that would be at a crosshair in the past or in other markets. You know, Josh, I wish we had more time, but we're coming up on the end of the episode here. I did want to thank you for spending some time with us kind of elucidating the food waste issue and also giving us a little bit more of a positive outlook at, I think, about, you know, the entire issue. Uh, but I am kind of interested here too, you know, and I'm sure the audience is, if they want to learn more about flash food, where should they go? Our website is flashfood.com. And then you could download the Flash Food app on the Google Play Store or the Apple iOS, the App Store, anywhere that you get your apps. I will say that generally with interviews like this, we have our highest spike of downloads and we also have our highest spike of negative App Store reviews because people in California, for example, will download the app and we don't have any stores there. So suffice it to say, folks, that we're coming to your markets as soon as we can and download the app, check it out, and then tell your local grocery chain about us so that we can be added into more stores faster. But this is great. I really appreciate you having me on. Excellent. We'll definitely share relevant links in the description of the episode. And yeah, if you're in one of those states uh, that's not currently covered by Flash Food, make a little noise with your local grocer. Maybe you can get them out there. But yeah, Josh, once again, thank you for your time today. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. And that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute Podcast. Once again, thanks to Josh for spending some time with us today. Make sure you take a look at the description of this episode so you can find relevant links to go take a look at Flash Food as well. But until next time, this is Chris Campbell 
signing off. <laughs>